episode number 39 of Smirk Network. Finally, we don't have DJ here, so we can actually have fun. Uh, I am your shots fired already. Already. (laughs) I am just kidding, DJ. I actually meant it. Uh, I am your co-host, Club, a.k.a. Caleb. With me, as always, I have LT from NYC. Uh, What's going uh, on, LT? I still love you, man. I still love you, Deej. You come back anytime. And and returning, we have Racevic, who recently completed his Mass Effect series of videos. Very, very popular, might I add. Uh, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me back. It's good to oh, be back. Absolutely. All right. Let's 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 jump right in, man. I, I really enjoy these years later videos. It's like listening to a podcast, except it's <laughs> edited and it's only with one person. And it's... It's it can actually be pretty entertaining. Um, do you mind talking about this series in comparison to your other one in terms of maybe challenges or enjoyment when making, doing the research and going back through? Because these are long, these are not short games. You're, you you yeah. had to play through these to to get all the information. So maybe let's start with Mass Effect One. Yeah. Uh, well, the. the- the main the main difference going into this series as opposed to the Halo one is that the Halo one was more of a that was completely improvisational. As in, when I started it, I was originally planning to like do Halo one, two, three, like within the month before Halo five came out. Then of course I realized just how long it was going to take to edit just the Halo one video alone. And this is all doing when I, while I was moving and getting a job and working full time and all that type of stuff, which is why that series ended up taking basically a year to uh, from the beginning point to the end. Where so when I finished Halo Five, you know, I figured I'd go with Mass Effect because when I heard that Andromeda's release date was going to be sometime in the spring, I figured it'd be April May, and then they said, "Well, actually, it means March 17th. And I went, "Oh fuck!" So then I immediately <laughs> bailed on making a Mirror's Edge video, which I'm now working on, and went straight to busting my ass to get the Mass Effect videos done. And so in the case of Mass Effect 1, I wanted to do multiple playthroughs, but couldn't do that, which was actually okay, because I've already played through each of those games like four times. So this would have been like my fifth occasion. But the main thing that I had going into this series, as opposed to the Halo 1, was mainly experience and uh, some understanding of what worked and what didn't before. The Halo series was something that kind of grew and evolved over time, whereas this occasion I had seven episodes under the belt. I had a lot of more editing experience, and going into it, I was able to plan everything a lot better. So, and get myself to a much stricter, not stricter as in uh, less creativity, but more just like an actual plan as to making them this time. They could spend this week playing this occasion and spend this amount of time editing or this amount of time researching, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, the the Halo One video, the Mass Effect One video, uh, was mainly kind of a response, sort of a culmination of after everything I did after Halo. So like for instance, no long title sequence. All the chapters were just named after the pre-production or gameplay, et cetera, et cetera. None of the changing or messing things around and a lot of type of stuff, unlike the Halo series. So you edited all these videos sort of together because you uploaded them within weeks of each other yeah that's the other thing too is unlike halo halo i always had like months in between because one no one was watching them at the time two 
um, I was working a full-time job and the worst thing, and specifically I was doing, I was working as a QA tester at EA at the time. So the worst thing to do when you're sitting in front of a computer eight hours a day, uh, just mindlessly slaving away at FIFA is to sit down for five hours at a computer and do actual work. Yeah. So the, yeah. So I did, I, that's why those series took so long was this time, you know, I was completely devoting myself, um, to the Mass Effect series and I had to because, um, there was only about a month for each video. Uh, when we get to Mass Effect 3, that's when I'll talk about the more stressful occasion. Com comparatively, Mass Effect 1 and 2 videos were much more kind of the right balance where you had a deadline, but you still had a little bit of breathing room. Yeah, so in, in Mass Effect 1, you, in the very beginning, you you let you say, Look, sci-fi is one of the most talked about genres in anything. Yeah. And then you uh, will proceed to break down each aspect of not, not just the game, but the gameplay itself uh, and how like the combat, they were trying to, trying to do like revolutionary things, but it was all just kind of underwhelming and lukewarm. There was a bunch of things, like the cover system was kind of, Mm -hmm. kind of wonky the shooting is kind of wonky and then all these reused assets and and whatnot what what made you decide to uh go with and i'm not saying that it's a bad thing but what made you decide to go with a big negative first in your very first um sort of analytical uh segment as opposed to talking about the as talking about the story and uh <clears throat> what what made you think that uh this is important to to tackle first i go to gameplay first may, uh, for two reasons one it's because i i know that when it comes to analytical content in particular going to be a big portion of audience members who just do not care about story i mean i have i have even sure. a couple there's even a couple of friends of mine who i've known for a long time a couple of whom who just do just hate story in games they just like think that story is a <laughs> completely unnecessary thing you need to tack onto a game they don't care about it any cutscene they'll just skip there's no context for it it just ruins you know modern gaming and stuff like that so we sure. know a guy like that except he goes in the movie realm story doesn't care <laughs> big yeah. name actor he's in yeah um he, yeah so like these people aren't so much that they're more of just they are far more interested in systems that can create their own stories which i'm totally all for the main for I think sure because I, I totally get where they're coming from. It's just that I, I, I like system-driven games where you make your own stories. That's pretty much what my entire stalker video was about. But I also enjoy a classic linear experience in the same way. What I mainly, if I were to work on a game, what I'd mainly be pursuing is a hybrid of sorts. But so that's one of the reasons I tackle gameplay first is just to get right to the meat and potatoes first. And then um, rather than force those people to skip, because at the end of the day, we even if you love story in a game, the gameplay is still the thing you're going to be engaged with the most. That is what oh, you're going to be spending 75 to 90% of the time doing uh, with a little bit of story in between. So, yeah, so even in a game like Mass Effect that is more story-focused than, say, Halo, for instance, uh, to me, it's still important to go to gameplay first uh, in that case. And in the case of Mass Effect 1, a lot of the gameplay errors were not made out of... Uh, they were mainly they mainly stem from the chaotic development structure, which is one of the reasons I make a big deal out of putting the pre-production uh, fades in my videos is because a lot of the time, and I learned this personally when uh, when even just me and QA, when you understand the development structure, a lot of things 
start to make sense and be put in perspective. I, I think that was most important in the Mass Effect 3 video, but it also applies to Mass Effect 1 and 2. Uh, Mass Effect 1 was a combination of a team that up until that point had made a really great game of KOTOR, and instead of just doing that again, they wanted to increase everything in terms of fidelity and presentation. However, like a lot of games at that time, but of course, just like a lot of games at that time, they simultaneously tried to give more depth to something like, say, conversation, while also making more conversation. And those two things kind of contradict each other, especially when you're having to put more work into less content that more fidelity always demands. So that was kind of the challenge that they ran into with that game. Yeah, you you really highlighted that in in a little bit too, but not nearly as much, is this, this side of pre-production. And mm. I didn't realize, and I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but I didn't realize Mass Effect 3 had such a chaotic development. I would have figured mm -hmm. that they were just fine, that they... They knew what they were doing by that point, that they had almost had like a system down and it would have been fine. And it and when you brought that up, I'm like, well, this totally makes sense. Because like some some of the uh like what I forget the planet, the uh I think it's the Turian planet that you don't go to. What is that yeah. called? Paladin. Whatever it is. Paladin. The yeah. Moon is Manet, I think, or something like that. Yeah, so you go to the moon but you don't go to the the uh, the planet. Yeah. And it, and I was like, Oh, okay, well that makes sense because it, like I thought I was gonna go there, but you end up just on like this moon. So it's little things like that that start to that start to come together. It's a bit more obvious in Mass Effect One, just because mm -hmm. the problems are so obvious and the mm -hmm. side missions are so obviously like just weird and almost late. It, it looks lazy at some points, but well, that and also yeah. it was a new IP at that time. The other thing right. with Mass Effect Three is that there's a lot of investment by players up until that point. Um, whereas in Mass Effect 1, it was a new IP, it was a new franchise on a new platform. Uh, I mean, and also, I mean, I got a comment just recently from people saying, how dare you say Bioware was only established in 2009? There's so much older than that. I'm like, don't get me wrong, Baldur's Gate and those games are wonderful and a big deal of their time. But Bioware was not at in the public eye the same way that a studio like Rockstar or Bungie or Epic was at that time. And they were wanting to. It's very clear when you look at Mass Effect 2 in particular, that Bioware was interested in getting into that mainstream space. And I mean, that's also, that's an understandable desire by anybody in entertainment. You you would, you would want your product to be seen by more people. Uh, whether or not how far you're willing to go to make that the case, that's where you, things start to come to question. And that's where people start to disagree with uh, EA's publishing division and stuff like Mass Effect and in Dead Space in particular, and how it handled its later games compared to its earlier ones. Do you think Bioware had more more to do with the fact that Mass Effect 2 was far more mainstream than Mass Effect 1? Or do you think that's more publisher interference? So I, I think could... that was absolutely a choice on Bioware's part. They really? Wanted, I think so. I, they, you can, I mean, something I describe as well, I, I forget which video it was. I think it might have been Mass Effect 2. But if you look at each of Bioware's games, they always respond to a common criticism that was typically laid at them by the mainstream gamer. So in Baldur's Gate, it was way too much reading. So they addressed it with KOTOR where people speak instead of you having to read their text. But then your main character doesn't talk. So they fix that with Mass Effect where your main character speaks. But then all the RPG systems and the uh, the looting and the, and, the, and the micromanagement, all that type of stuff is way too, com is way too boring. So they got rid of that Mass Effect 2 and made it more action-focused. It's just like each progressive game was just a response uh, to the crowd because Bioware was interested 
I think this is, might sound a little more harsher than I intend, but I think what they were always seeing is that whenever they made a successful game, they always saw rather than the audience that they had, they always saw the audiences that they didn't have. Like they always right. saw which people weren't buying their games and for what reasons and try to address that. And while some may disagree with that, I think it's a totally understandable desire for to get your game into as many hands as possible. I mean, it's why a lot of developers uh, move away from certain games and apply themselves to others because they just want their games to be played by everybody. I heard a, not to deviate on this for too long, but I heard Ryan Payton, the guy who made, um, who went on to make uh, Republic, uh, that mobile stealth game. He was talking about uh, when he spent all these years working on Metal Gear Solid 4, it being released, and then when he goes home to his parents to show off the game, they go in the first level, and the parents have never played a video game before. So therefore, they cannot actually experience this thing that he just spent four or five years yeah. of his fucking life working on. He's just sitting there in horror as they <laughs> bump into walls, run in circles, you know, oh, press man. the button that makes them, you know, go to the ground instead of run wow. away, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a totally understandable desire. It's just, but yeah, I mean, in Mass Effect 2, I think it was absolutely Bioware's decision to make their games more, quote unquote, mainstream and stuff think, like that. That was I a think... really sad story right there. It was like one time a buddy of mine got this killer tattoo. He thought it was the most awesome thing. <laughs> Comes home, shows his parents. That's <laughs> nice, dear man. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of, you, you just know that vibe where you, they say everything's okay, but you just know that, no, it's not. If it's okay, why are you staring in the corner? <laughs> not, not, not it's been three days. Yeah. And it's like, especially with a game, it, it, we we talked about this on uh, I think a couple episodes ago how how games are undervalued and just someone looking at it is, can't appreciate it like they can look at a movie even and even movies are under I think underappreciated and how they're made and the the amount of work and time that goes into it but with the game it's like you don't understand how many puzzle pieces this took to oh, put yeah. together. <laughs> I do think, you know, it's like, I mean, on, I, I kind of have two opinions on that. Because on the one hand, yes, it's true that absolutely these things are undervalued. But the other, on the other hand, when you go buy a car, are you thinking about all the hundreds of people and the assembly lines and the tech and the blueprints and the hours upon hours spent on making it? Or are you just there to get something that works? I or mean, you're there to get something that works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think a lot of people have that same idea with entertainment. I mean, people like me or some other people may look deeper into it because we're really passionate. We care about you know this medium. I care but, about it, Rachel Vick. Uh, <laughs> but other people might uh, – a lot of other people, when they go see a movie or they buy, go purchase a game, they are spending their money on entertainment and they expect to be entertained. And that's how they look at it. And that's a totally legitimate outlook because at the end of the day, it's not the consumer's place to empathize and sympathize with all the struggles and trials and tribulations that the people who made it went through. They're paying for a product that they're supposed to get some kind of return in. And that's just the way that they look at it. So I think on the one hand, yes, it's undervalued. At the same time, it isn't. If you can't take that, if that's something that you're not willing to deal with, then you're just never going to survive in this industry. Oh, that's absolutely. True. That's very true. I feel that way when I go to drama. If if there's like a tearjerker kind of uh, drama that's come out, and the previews are saying heartfelt, you, mm-hmm. you won't leave the you won't leave this theater uh, with a dry eye. And if I'm not go leaving that theater like sobbing, I get my money back. <laughs> I don't got time for that. Yeah, I'm trying to go through emotions here. Yeah, there's I'm a lot of for it. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. It's like when I always, I almost feel I this I absolutely think that comedy is harder than drama for one key reason, and that's when you go to a comedy, just a movie being labeled as a comedy is almost like a dare. Yeah, right. <laughs> when, you go to a, when you go to a theater and you're told this movie is a comedy, you kind of like cross your arms and think, "Okay, bitch, bring it on, make me laugh." Bob. <laughs> you have completely different expectations than a drama in that regard. So no, I feel for those people. I think I think comedy especially is undervalued because they think, oh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take as much because it doesn't make people, you know, sit there and cry like a drama does. But no, it's it's way harder to do that. You know, it's much easier to, you know, prop up a kid dying and make people sad than it is to tell the joke from a phone book. Yeah, no, no, no I, I'm with you on that one. Uh, speaking of comedies, have you ever seen uh, the newest Jackie Chan movie? No, with, I have uh, not. Good. With That's Johnny your... Knoxville? No, it's it's garbage. Yeah, that talk about may, may having comedies be difficult to make. Like, mm. we we do this we do this segment where we will him and I will watch a movie and then we'll talk about it and kind of criticize whatever if it's good or bad. And we didn't even finish this one. <laughs> what was the time? What? what was the official time? Thirty-seven fifty. I don't know, man. I think it was like it felt like twelve hours. See, that that's was the when thing. we stopped. Like, we even wrote down the time to what where we stopped it to bring it up and you probably yeah. you didn't care about it to the point where you wrote anything important it was probably a tissue you threw it out three days ago you know <laughs> that's how shitty it was yeah it's one of those things where it can't even there's not even entertainment value in how badly it's fucking up it's just exactly sad. it was it was pure sadness that's all it was <laughs> can you do a video series on the failure of johnny knoxville in hollywood <laughs> johnny knoxville 20 years later <laughs> Uh, imagine how many heads would turn just out of pure surprise and just get all the clicks. <laughs> Dude, I, I have to say, your uh, subscriber count has actually gone up a lot since the last time or since the, the Halo videos, it seems. I was going to bring that up as well. Is it is it? Uh, I'm seeing 70,000 plus for your YouTube page. Is that right? Yeah, it's I I don't understand it. I mean, <laughs> it's what? I've been I, okay, I've been doing this for you know I've been making you know YouTube content for an internet content for you know ten plus years by this point, and it's only now at this point where not only is there content that I'm happy with, but there's viewers that are now there to watch it, and uh, I absolutely I'm absolutely grateful for it, and it's something that like when I saw the views that were particularly growing on stuff like the Halo Reach video or the Halo Four content, that's when I knew I kind of had to jump on it because if I didn't, then this opportunity was never going to surface again, or if it did, it was going to take years. So no, I'm absolutely grateful for the viewers and the subscriber count, and you know it's still it's still bizarre to me. It's still bizarre when I go on my Twitter feed and I get a follow, and it says something like you know Joseph Anderson or Liana Kersner, and I go, I know these people. Why are they following my content? Like, oh, I, well, I guess because my YouTube channel has views for some reason. <laughs> it's just like it, it never ceases to be baffling uh, to me, but I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, I, I what. What makes the Halo Reach video? I mean, not to be rude, but like, what? Why the Halo Reach video? I don't. Like, know. It's so yeah, strange honestly. to me. I don't get it. Like, I think, I think what? Because here's the thing. Because it it baffled me when it happened, and I I think I I pinned down why. It's because that when I launched that video, coincidentally, which I had no idea of, I wasn't tracking this at all. When the day I launched it, the game 
got patched on Xbox One backwards compatibility ah, to be yeah. playable. Um, because when it when it launched, you know, I tried playing it and it was fucking abhorrent. It was I could it was so bad that when you would fire the plasma rifle, you could you could hear the sound effect, you know, stretching out because the frame rate was so poor. So you know, to have it patched and yep. make it playable, I think that's what got people talking about it. They were stumbling on my, upon my video. It gained traction that way, and then because it was not the most flattering video I've ever made, <laughs> it, it's it's um, and then you know it got conversation there, and then it just kept going and going. And now when people go to the years later series, they see that one has the most views, and then they go on to it, which is why I think it keeps growing. Now, when you say right. not the most flattering, do you mean you took some jabs at the game? I took jabs at the game. And here's the, here's the thing is, in that video, I stand by everything I said in it. I think the intro uh, of the of the alien uh, invasion is still lame. I'm still not a fan of the armor abilities. I still have issues with its storytelling. The thing that I really took away from the Halo Reach video, though, it's not about what your opinion is. It's about how you express it. So, for instance, when I criticize the introduction, I phrase it in the video as the Spartans, when they go in here, you know, at the end of the level, you know, they're saying, God help us all. They, you know, the Covenant are on reach. But at the beginning, when they see Covenant aliens, they just act like, oh, Covenant, here we go again. Like, it's just like <laughs> not a big deal. It's like a big disconnect there. But what people took that, what some people took that as is me saying, oh, you know, the Spartans should freak out and all that type of stuff. And they say, well, they can't do that because they're Spartans. And... You know, I realize that when you're making a video, when you're taking, when you're making a video that's analytical and stuff like that, um, you have to structure your arguments in a way that allows people to be, to see it clearly. Because even though they may be misreading you, it's ultimately at the end, you're the one making this content. You are the one taking this stance. So therefore you're supposed to be the one, if you're the host, you're supposed to be the one that's clarifying everything so that there is no misunderstanding. So, so let's just say I came back from Batman v Superman. Yeah. And I turned to club and I said, damn, that movie sucked. Yeah. Do I need to follow that up or is it a universal nod of the head? <laughs> well, he's like, it, it's different. If you're making a three, if you're just posting, you know, a comment on Metacritic, then no, probably not. But if you're making a 45 oh, minute long analysis of Batman right. v Superman and it amounts to nothing more than just, oh, it sucks then you probably need to construct well, it a little better. So that you, is wise. Yeah, so like in Reach, you know, it's, it, it's again, it's a case of I stand by everything in it. It's just I do think there are some things that I could have phrased differently. So like, for instance, um, in Mass Effect 1, uh, in that video, uh, I there were some people that misread a couple things in there. I My mind is just going blank. But I know there are a couple things I said in there that people misread, one or two. But then in Mass Effect 2 video, I narrowed it down to like only two or three things that people misread. And those I was able to live with. It's not a case of like, oh my god, some people misreading my content. I don't give a shit that people you know, <laughs> misread some things because it's not a big deal. It's just a video on the internet. People are just going to comment. That's how it is. But, right. you know, I, in you know, every time I make a video, I'm never content. I'm never going to – I never want to get to a point where I'm just like, oh, this video is fine because my fans say it's fine. As long as my fans are happy, I don't need to improve whatsoever. No, like, you know, I'm going to listen to people's criticisms, and I'm going to take that into account. So, you know, the Reach video, while it got, you know, some negative reception, I don't really care that it did. I mainly care that I was able to learn things from it and apply to future content. That's why uh, you have 70,000 subscribers, and they got jack shit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe that is the case. But yes, it's like, you know, for an example, you know, in, in my Mass Effect 1 video, um, I had been falling into a habit of 
of using a lower tone in my voice. And I, and people think, oh, it's deliberate, but it wasn't, it was just a complete accident that I just fell into. And it wasn't until I got called out by some people saying, ah, oh, you're just having, you, we hear vocal fry constantly. It's really annoying. And even though, you know, I'd have fans come in and say, don't listen to him. It's fine. You know, I took that to heart. And then in Mass Effect 2 and 3, you notice that my voice, my voice tone is kind of a hybrid of my faster talking in the early, the earliest videos I have on my channel and the slower ones that I did in my later uh, content, which meant that it was the in-between of, it was analytical enough, but it wasn't unhuman. It wasn't just robotic and boring. So I felt like, so I was, so I was able to take, you know, some of that negative feedback and turn into something positive and other content, which I'm happy with. And that's what I value. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at some of these big YouTubers who are, who do take everything that they're, they're, they'll, they'll say in a video, I take everything my fans say to heart. And then, and then you check back in sometime later. And they're all sad and like, I, I don't know, man, it's just not like for me anymore or whatever. It's not rewarding. <laughs> and then, you're, well, it's because you're caring about what every, every person says. And I think if we had any fans, I would be like that. <laughs> well, it's like, it's just a balancing act. So, I mean, if a comment, if you, so, you know, if you get, let's say in my case, you know, you get a comment that says this video sucks. I don't like it because you're a KOTOR fanboy. I can just dismiss that. I go, oh, well, fuck off. Because clearly anybody <laughs> with half a brain can look at this and tell that I'm not coming at Mass Effect from a KOTOR fanboy perspective. If I'm a KOTOR fanboy, explain to me how I've got a hundred hours more on each game. Uh, compared to the original KOTOR. I've got more on Mass Effect 1 than both games combined. So, like, you know, how can I be that if right. that's the case? How could I, so, you know, I can just write that off because clearly the person is just a knee-jerk reaction moron. But if a person makes a comment saying, you shouldn't use the lower tone in your voice at the end of every sentence because it's repetitive for the listener, I go, you know what? You're right. You're onto something there. And he's, here's the other thing too. That person isn't saying, oh, your content is shit. Go fuck yourself. Die in a hole. You know, he's <laughs> trying to be helpful here. And in fact, right. you know, it's better than if he just ignored that and said, oh, great video. But it kind of reminds me of, you know, the, the psycho character in Whiplash when he's saying, you know, there's no words more harmful than good job. And this man, he hits the nail on the head. Like, I, I bet if when he was in high school, some bully came up to him and said, "Hey, try this weed. What are you, chicken?" And Rachel was looking at him he's like, "I'm not a chicken. You're a turkey. That's the kind of guy you are, Rachel." Oh my! I God. applaud you. I applaud you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate so, uh, calling people turkeys. <laughs> they deserve it when they deserve it like that big old bully. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you not yeah. remember these, these drug commercials, the anti-drug commercials? Rachel, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I was a Canadian locked up in my basement playing games all the time without cables. So no, I don't remember. All, all right. Advertisements. All right, all you Americans who are over 30 years old. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the past minute and a half. It was a big risk. Who knows if it paid off? <laughs> I'm not a chicken, you're a turkey. Classic American television. All right. Let's, let, let's, move, let's move on from uh, Mass Effect. I know you put a lot of time into that, <laughs> but let's <laughs> let's move on for a sec because I told you that we were going to talk some comic books today. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that has been missing in my life, and I believe that you have read some recently too? Question mark. Uh, I went through, I finished the last volume of Low, and I finished the last volume of Descender that was released, and unfortunately, I haven't, haven't been able to um, catch up since then. However the one that I'm addicted to now and I'm looking forward to reading after I'm done uh, on a Ghost in the Shell binge is uh, Lazarus 
uh, by Greg Ruka. And I'm, I just bought two volumes of that and I'm looking forward to catching it up on there. Did you say last issue of Low? Uh, the last issue of Low that was released, yes. Uh, you mean Halo? Not Halo. <laughs> I know that's what no. you thought it was. No, it's Rick uh, Remender's like yeah. underwater like post-apocalyptic thing. It's awesome. I, I've only read the first volume, but mm-hmm. I, does it how how does it change after that first volume? Is does it get does it get like better? Because I wasn't I wasn't completely hooked on it. Although I, oh, I yeah, no. think like, it was volume good. Volume one is something that I like. Volume two, I think, is when I started to get really into it. And the thing that's uh, the thing that's interesting about Low is that it's one of those stories that when I first re- read it, you know, I like it. But it's only the more I think about it, I start to get really into it. And the, so the thing that's funny about Low is the way that each of the volumes do truly feel different from one another, even though they're just issues and chapters because not to spoil anything, but volume two begins in a completely different location from the first one. Okay. At first you're just completely lost. You're like, what the fuck is this? Where the hell are we? Until it gives you a little nibble at the very end. You're like, Oh, and you start to picture where, where it it all starts to connect around. And I, and that's what I like about low in general is the way that leaves you lost at the beginning and but it assures you that no no it's okay it will all connect this isn't lazy writing this isn't like oh we're just going to change this for the sake of it no it does have a purpose and it does wrap around later it's very philip k dick in that sort of sense where it leaves you you know sort of dazed and confused at the beginning but for a purpose have you seen the director's cut of dark city no i have not in fact i've not seen that movie yet and i've been really meaning to for a I long think you'd time like it because of the reasons you just talked about yeah <laughs> you have to make sure it's the director's cut the theatrical cut was the biggest dumbed down scenario yeah. of all time they just spelled everything out in the beginning so, oh because uh, oh you, oh, you audiences cut. are so stupid it kind of reminds me of i'm not sure if you've ever seen hey, the, the guy Ritchie movie revolver but uh that that one was that back that was a movie that got really panned by critics and it got rewritten re-edited by Luc Besson, an American version nice. that just completely, but unfortunately, it completely butchers the original material and just tries to simplify everything. And it adds narration in scenes where before wow. there was none to explain things. To like, exactly. To, yeah, to like, oh, don't worry, audience. Don't worry that you're an idiot. We're going to spell everything out for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure narration was definitely part of that theatrical cut. If it, if it oh. wasn't a flat-out voiceover, it was definitely titles. <laughs> but yeah um in terms of of comics yeah descender is another one that i mean i loved volume one and two volume three it's good it's just that it what it volume three mainly focuses on is an individual chapter devoted to these other characters that aren't in the main cast which is fine you know it flushes them out but you know that this is kind of like sort of a bridge volume where it's not okay. focusing on you know really upping the stakes of the plot more and more it's more about giving background to characters to give them more value later which i do understand and appreciate it's just you know while you're on the bridge you're just like this isn't as you know heart pounding the one that i'm really hooked on at the moment is lazarus which i have not read volume three or four yet but i did i it's it's one of those books that you know after reading volume two I went, okay, yeah, I'm sold, and I just bought the next two. Even though I haven't, you know, I don't, who knows, maybe it gets shit after three, I don't know, because I, I bought them anyways, but it's a really great uh, series uh, done by Greg Ruka about basically these uh, families that 
where the American the American government is pretty much crumbled, and instead, you know, each uh, city or district is just hosted by an individual family, and each family has their Lazarus, which is sort of their family protector, who's like sort of like this ubermensch, you know, this person that, you know, that can come back to life and this person that can take dozens of bullets and not die and is super strong and tough and, and all that type all of right. stuff. And it mainly follows this uh, main female lead uh, about the way she runs the family. And I think it's a really, really well-handled character because a lot, like a lot of my favorite comics, the thing that I appreciate about it is that it doesn't spend, because they're restricted for time, because they have an artist on there who also needs to get work done, they don't sit there and spend like a would in a traditional novel the first hundred pages justifying the concept. It doesn't give you the backstory on how these All families right. got started or how the government fell or how these Lazarus are able to come back to life and how this, you know, this this woman uh, is a is a warrior instead of taking charge of the family's business or anything like that. It doesn't justify any of that. It just puts it there. And it just allows you to see all the results that come from it, which is really appreciated to me uh, and something that I really value in those types of stories. That's that's one reason why I like Manhattan Projects. I don't have you have you read that yet? I've 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 not read it yet, but I've been I've seen it on Amazon. I've been pretty tempted on occasion. Yeah, I I read the first issue and I was like, okay, Manhattan Projects. I know something weird is going to happen, and it's like immediately they understand that there's a reason you bought this comic because you're looking for something just weird and yeah. something just well written, something weird, and you you understand that it's going to go to a different place. And I really appreciated that because it if you're picking up a comic in general, it almost doesn't even matter which one. There is a sense of like you are ready for something weird. You are yeah. ready for a asteroid to come down from the sky, you're ready for a volcano to explode and be covered with <laughs> green acid. Like you're just you're you're and ready for that sort of stuff. And it's like yeah, and when it you meander from, around it's like annoying. Yeah, and it comes from the imagery too because, you know, one of the things that I notice a lot of a, a good comic writer takes advantage of is how how much easier it is to establish something with just a, a single frame. Whereas in yes. a novel you have to sit there and you have to describe everything. It's like one of, one of my biggest frustrations in novels with dozens of characters is that it's really hard to keep track of them all in your head visually. Whereas in a comic book, if you can just have a, if you have a really great artist, you can have a character be memorable in your head from just one image. Immediately, you know, okay, it's this person here. You know, imagery is really powerful. And I think that's what a good comic takes advantage of compared to a standard novel. Although I think a standard novels, I think they could really take a couple of cues from uh, that type of writing. There's a novel that I read uh, called Amped by Daniel H. Wilson. I might have brought it up on the last podcast. I don't know. But that writer went on to be a comic writer. And it really shows in his novel structure because just like a good comic, the opening chapter isn't 50 pages of backstory and how these androids got outlawed. It just, the, the opening page is the main character who's a high school teacher trying to stop one of his students who's an android from throwing her, who's a, who's a cyborg, from throwing off herself off the building and killing herself. And wow. it's like, immediately, I'm there. I don't yeah, need right. <laughs> all this backstory explanation. I'm already in the drama immediately from page one. And I really wish, you know, more novels could take inspiration from that. But I guess because so many books have been bestsellers, despite having that structure of the first act just be pure setup, they just yeah. roll with it. I definitely had that hooked on kind of feeling you got from that scene uh, from the first issue of The Submariner in uh, 1939, 1940 or so. This guy's crazy. He's got that mean grimace on his face, and he's saying things like, 
Like, uh, I will destroy the white man for everything he has done to my people. Yeah. Just, Did I actually you know, say that? Yeah. No, no. He he has a he has something against uh, against the white man. Did he actually say that? Oh yeah. Oh, I'll look it up. Just give me a second. You guys <laughs> okay. But that's uh, the thing. It's like you know, you you just you, you see that, and you're just you're there. You don't need all this backstory. It's um, you know, I'm I'm, I do read the occasional uh Jack Reacher book here and there, and the thing that I think that series, the reason that if no one who's read the Jack Reacher books, the very first one called Killing Floor, it's not an amazing novel by any stretch of the imagination, but it's got a great opening fr uh, sentence. Which the opening sentence, you open the book and page one, it says, "I was arrested in Eno's diner at twelve o'clock." And like those are the first words you hear, and immediately, you yeah, you're right there. And immediately, the reader's already thinking, "Well, who are you? Where's Eno's diner? Why were you arrested?" Blah 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 blah. And like the, and that's what propels the reader through that narrative. And it's yeah, it's that to me is so much more powerful than, oh hey, here's this plant where this main character works. What if something were to happen to it? Hey, here's this woman that he fancies. What if a situation were to happen to get them together? Right. <laughs> Huh? It's, it's like yeah it's like uh you mentioned earlier when how, how it's so annoying when they just will give you narration down your throat explain everything out and then the things that end up hooking people are the things that assume you know what's going like what's going on or what what has happened almost like you you've jumped in here in the middle of this story and doesn't even bother catching you up on what's happened that we're just gonna we're just gonna start right in in the uh in the action or not even in the action, just in an interesting part. Like instead of having, okay, we're just going to have a uh, 19 pages of setup and then we're, and then we're going to start the story. They, yeah. the, when the story starts is when it's interesting. And I think mm. that, I mean, as much as I think each book needs a good chapter one, like the things that make a great chapter one are, are stuff like mass effects where you, where you jump in, there's a pre-established universe or things going yeah. on that have happened before then. But the interesting part is just getting going. And it sets up a situation where you can pick up on things immediately. Like, you know, I talked about in my Mass Effect 1 video about how, you know, you're not told what the specters are, but you are, but just from Joker's sentence of not believing that this is just a standard run because there's a specter on board, you immediately know, oh, that means they're important. They're a big deal. You're not told, oh, they're part of the council. They are these, you know, people who are exempt from the law. You just know that they're a big deal right off on the first sentence and yeah it's it's it, a good a good setup is one that does not feel like setup and exactly yeah and you know and something i love is when anything be it a game or a movie or anything like that is understanding of the audience uh in the doom documentary done by danny o'dwyer uh no clip uh it was no surprise to me when the creative director said that for doom they took some influence from shane black uh, Shane Black, he's wrote movies, uh, the, the Nice Guys, Iron Man 3, et cetera, et cetera, oh, uh, nice Lethal, we uh, Lethal Weapon. Um, he's that guy. And in his movie, The Last Boy Scout uh, with Bruce Willis, there's a scene where Bruce Willis encounters the main villain. And he, the, the villain, and Bruce says something along the lines of like, oh, so like you're the main bad guy? And like, yeah, so I guess <laughs> we should introduce ourselves. And he's like, well, I don't, why should we bother with that? He's like, oh, well, because I'm the main guy that's going to fuck you up. It's like, oh, so I'm supposed to be threatened by you right now? Yeah, yeah, no, we'll see about that. He just starts sitting there. <laughs> and, and it's just like, he, you know, like immediately, and the thing that's cool about that scene is that it makes people feel like, not only does it make them feel smart, it makes them feel involved. 
because it may because the, the the audience members sitting there going like they know that i know they know that i know that this is going to be the main bad guy they're not trying to pretend like oh you're too stupid we're going to set this right. up for you and you know and even as simple of a story of a game like doom that's what it did you know it told when it opens the first screen we have the main person telling you oh this facility was totally fine and then it went all went to shit and blah 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 and then the main character throws the screen away because like, we fucking know this there's alarms <laughs> blaring there's demons chasing us you gave me power armor to shotgun yes things are going to shit why do you need to explain to me why that's how that happened yeah, when when they assume that like uh, you are just the dumbest, the dumbest thing to walk the earth, <laughs> so we're we're gonna we understand that you can't read and you can't you can't see a story coming from a mile away, but you know here it is. Here's the story. Hope you have fun. Like that is that is infuriating. <laughs> to me, it's like I feel like uh, something that you know, I talked about in my first video that I ever did on my channel. I one of the things I talk about with Call of Duty Four in particular is that that game works. Its campaign specifically works. It works whether you're looking at it as whether you're a frat boy who is drunk off his ass who just wants to shoot some terrorists or you're a big <laughs> geeky nerd who wants to pick apart every little detail in the story. It works either case. The story is compatible with both things because the narrative setup is there, but the gameplay supports that you can just turn your brain off and participate in the gameplay action. And I feel like if you're if you're going to make a mainstream game that's probably the best approach to take if you if you're one of those people that unless you don't care then in which case you can just you know throw the story out the window but if you do care about telling a good story and you try it but you're also trying to make a mainstream game it's probably best to just balance those two things which i'm not saying like oh just do that and it's fine like it's really <laughs> just go do that. it's really difficult i get that but it is something to probably pursue after rather than you make a big concept and then think oh but what if they're too stupid to get it and then you write it as if they're stupid and then because then it just ruins it for both because then for the people who do yeah. understand the story, they have to sit there and meander around with all your bullshit uh, that you have to go through to get to the good stuff. And the people who aren't invested, who just want to shoot things, they don't care because they're not going to care about your your concept regardless because they're not there for it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a misdirection that I see pretty much everything in entertainment, not just That's, games. That but, is but, how I feel about Andromeda. Andromeda... Well, because we can get to that now, because that's a game I've been playing all last week. Uh, all right, yeah, I, I, big comics. Got, Let's talk Andromeda. I've got like, I've got I'm like, not, six... I'm not done with comics. I'm sorry. No, yeah, yeah, no, go. Last go panel of the Submariner, and so uh -huh. Neymar dives into the ocean again on his way to further adventures in his crusade against white men. It says that. That is the last <laughs> panel of the first is, issue. Comics is... have so much stuff that you just can't get in like a film script. And I love them for that. I love them that, 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 that sort of that raw approach in their storytelling that feel like that nothing is, is cut away. It's like, uh, and I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time we were on the podcast, but I, I, the thing I love about comics is more, more so than just like the unexpected. It's, it's like a movie where they just take the most important frame in the scene or the most important yeah. frames in the scenes and they'll throw those up on the page. And then that like that in and of itself is interesting. Like if you made a comic book of like kill bill, like that would be an interesting comic. Even if you just mm. took frames from the movie uh, and with comic books, you have all these high concept, like 
a bunch of like all this stuff is going on. You have monsters coming from the other dimension and all this, and, all, and it still makes sense even with a few frames. And that it's baffling yeah. to me. Like it, it, comic book writers don't get enough credit either because <laughs> they have and all this weird stuff enough, going on. I don't think either the writers or the artists get enough credit. You know, it's it's both jobs are really really difficult. You know, it's amazing to me that you know and probably my favorite comic series 100 bullets that those two that the artist and writer never met each other in the entire run that they made that series really it was, yeah it throughout the entire thing it's just amazing to me that they were able to work that well together uh, have they despite ever spoken that. to each other like not in person not until after That's they finished crazy. the run i actually just started reading that today I told you this is possible <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just started reading that today what a what an interesting concept that is. Yeah, I high concept. Today. That was, yeah, that's just that concept. You know, I read that and I just go, I'm there. And again, yeah. it's like that, the 100 bullets was such a, that was, I mean, I read, um, I read Wanted and V for Vendetta before then. Uh, okay. But 100 bullets, I think, was the one that really got me into uh, the medium of comics. That was the one where I saw its really true potential because, I mean, I haven't reread Wanted, but Wanted is a rather interesting first time comic for a first time reader because because wanted is one of those comics that is just completely unhinged and as much as i i still think you can make a pretty great movie out of the original source material but i can totally see why they were not willing to do it i can totally see how getting a mainstream famous actor to play the role of a murderous psychotic rampage who rapes and kills anyone in their way is not going to sell very well to a mainstream i can totally see why they wouldn't want to do that but they were missing the, the the thing about wanted was it was one of those stories that you know that was able for us to really examine the worst of humanity in a way that you can only do when you have a bad character as the lead and that's what made it interesting but yeah in the case of hunter of bullets it's one of those things that if the story the story does branch out to something greater but like even at the beginning where it's just mainly short stories of these characters it's still completely involved in terms for the reader yeah and i've only read the the first issue but when you hand somebody a gun and say all right these hunter bullets are untraceable do whatever you want with it you're like yeah um what <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you sit there and you go you know it's a concept that works because you know we've all we've all been there we've all been at super low points in our lives where you know where if someone just came along and gave us the solution we probably would be desperate enough to just fucking take it and not question yeah. any of the long-term consequences there <laughs> And that's that's pretty scary. And it's something that I don't even think I don't think the mainstream public audience that consumes media, I don't think they'll understand that comics can do this sort of thing for a while. Oh, <laughs> Unless yeah. something really like really amazing comes along and really turns everybody's head. Um, I still don't think that they're gonna understand that comic books tackle these sort of things and do it really, really well. Well, I think the main problem is that they only advertise the, – the, the, it's an issue of advertising because the thing with comics and even now with – I mean occasionally you'll see a book ad you know, on a web page somewhere there. But it's pretty rare and it's usually for a book that's already sold 4 million fucking copies anyway. But um, for comics, they're pretty much only advertised in other comics or comic shops, which are so right. niche and are so not involved in the mainstream. Like at least with best-selling novels, you know, they put some in like a fucking grocery store here or there. Like they have a shelf there for your James Patterson's and shit like that. That's not very interesting. It's not very, you know, 
it's not the best way to represent that medium but you know at least it's something comics that's, don't even have that that's how i get introduced to daniel Steele. first six daniel Steele books i ever read right there in the supermarket aisle yeah and like you know when has anyone ever done that for a, when has anybody ever done that you know for a brian azarello or a oh, greg Rooker or anybody that's involved in comic books yeah it, disclaimer daniel Steele, not a fan even, <laughs> even if it's not a like a full trade i would love to see a handful of comic like not even no, i'm not talking even marvel or dc just no. like you have manhattan project you have lazarus up there like just something something that is not like if you were just to look at it from afar it might look like a book like mm-hmm. the title of a book not 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 a comic book and i think if people picked it up and just started flipping through while they're waiting for the cashier to scan them and check them out like i think people would be more interested a in- waiting room in a mental hospital here's the latest issue of moon knight Oh yeah, <laughs> actually the the new Moon Knight series would get people interested. That, that series is insane. I don't know if you guys have read the new Moon Knight, no. but it it is it's really great. Um, but yeah, like yeah, definitely. I think advertising poor for comics, and it's hard because when you tell somebody like you know you you talk to Joe Football like, hey, this comic is really awesome. You should give it a go. They'll just look at you like, what do I look like five? Like, well, there's there's that, and the other thing. I mean. Uh, the biggest issue i can talk about this actually because there's an experience that happened to me recently uh, involved with this but you know like when a friend of mine picked up wanted to pick up the dragon age comics he came to me like okay so how do i go about uh you know what can you tell me about comics? like how do these work so i so i have to explain to him that there are issues that are like you know basically a chapter and then those build up <laughs> to a volume that you know release like every three or four months or so depending on the comic and then those wow. get turned into books which are like you know two or three volumes and then those go those get told those get uh put into uh complete editions which then get told uh, get told if the series is long enough like in the case of walking egg and uh compendium oh, yeah i was about to say going and going and going and going and like you know you give you tell this to a person who's never read a comic book in their life and they're just going oh my god like you know what is this fucking homework you, you might know, have like, been overthinking it it's like how does this work you say you open the page and you start reading <laughs> top to bottom left to right yeah, words like... great sentences yeah but it's like you know so in the case of like um you know it's like you know compared to a video game where you just buy a game and then they get you slap into you well not anymore because it's with consoles with updates and patches and all this uh, bullshit yeah. that's but, a whole know, other conversation but, yeah, down, down, still, you know, relatively com- to, for for the sake of argument you know there's the relative to relatively compare games are far easier to just hand to a person and get them involved in a comic book where you know, and all that type of stuff so you know for instance um i got the first book of the brian michael bendez daredevil run which I enjoyed. I quite liked it. I got it, it, it was good. I got it on recommend. I got it on recommendation by Razor Fist on one of his videos, and because the new show is reportedly based off of it, so I picked up the first book, enjoyed it, went to go purchase book two when I had the money, and found that it had gone out of print. And now, if you wanted to buy book two, the only way you could was on eBay or Amazon for one hundred fifty dollars plus. And I went fuck that because I don't. Yeah. I, don't, I like Daredevil. I don't like it that much. So I sit there and I wait and I wait and I wait and I wait. And then like a year and a half later, like just a couple weeks ago, I see on Amazon as I'm scrolling through that thirty bucks. I went. I jumped on it. Got immediately. It arrives. The fucking first page is ripped up. Ah, so i have to sit there and i have to refund it so now i've got book three sitting here just fine without book two so i have to reorder it and it still hasn't got to me and i'm like you know this is like with a big issue with comics is just the hassle and 
volumes and issues and collections and oh that like you know there's a russian series i want to get called red star that was made in the 90s but the only complete edition printed for it was in 2004 that's not gone out of it so now if you want to get it it's like a hundred bucks on i on ebay and that means um and but now it's getting reprinted however the reprint is a hardcover only so it's like 50 bucks and it doesn't have all the issues it's got like issues one four it's missing five and then the second book goes from six to uh, to ten so you're so even though it's a complete yeah. edition you have to spend a hundred bucks across two books that's missing one of the issues so you're sitting there <laughs> like this is a big fucking problem it's not like a novel where you can just or oh it gets reprinted just put all the text into a book that looks prettier and give it a better cover and then slapdash it's 10 buck paperback again you know comics aren't like that and because of all these issues with re with reprints and importing and translations and, and volumes etc cetera, etc cetera, it's just too daunting for the average you know joe and jane consumer consumer who just want to go into a shop and buy a fucking story for entertainment i would rather sit through all the searching and researching i would have to do for a, a really really top knowledge top top notch solid comic series i agree and, and, I, and I think through... that's that's I, I absolutely agree and i think that's why you know comics still go despite the fact the sales aren't really the best they've ever been in history you know they still keep going because the hardcore love them and they love them for a reason because they are able to tell stories really well it's just that they're never going to get into that mainstream culture again unless the advertising improves and it becomes easier to pick up like for instance um well have you seen the theatrical release of wanted uh yes i have have you seen it in the theaters no i saw it in the theaters with a group of uh i would say six black folk you had you had the big burly ma and mm -hmm. the litter there just barking at the screen the mm -hmm. whole time following the stereotype yeah <laughs> it was it was the roughest experience i've ever had in a movie theater because you know if you go over there excuse me miss can you just excuse me excuse me i paid my ticket this shit is hot that's that's the voice i heard this whole time and i try to enjoy the movie as much as i can but every time i want to watch it again to be like hey that was entertaining right mm -hmm. i just it's like a drill in my brain with this little kid going, oh that was hot oh that was hot I remember I watching uh, <laughs> the third Batman movie uh, that uh, Christopher Nolan did, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, right. that's it. And I, this um, guy and girlfriend in the row in front of me, the girlfriend, she was gasping at every single thing that happened oh, on screen. Oh, no. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not cool. She said something that was sexual. Like every time, like happened, and I could see, I could just see the 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 boyfriend sighing because he oh. he was not able to say anything about this. Yeah, like clearly she's really enjoying this movie, probably more than I was. Like. Oh yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's like I mean, that's just you know, that's uh, theater experience. I'm not looking for it. I'm gonna go see Ghost in the Shell only because I've got a gift card, so I don't need to actually spend money. And two, I've got a very dear friend that we can sit and rant to each other about the movie Frames because we're like mega Ghost in the Shell fans. But that's oh, the only reason I'm doing that, and I don't. I, I'm not looking forward to a theater experience. I want to get in there at a matinee when everyone else is at work, and yep. I can just get there, sneak in, and get the fuck out. We have a we have a movie theater that's right next door to my work, and uh, it's always fun to just go in there. Just at like ten thirty, uh, I get off at like uh, I get off at nine, 
So yeah. it's like no one, no one's gonna be up to go watch a movie unless it's someone who's like sitting here at FedEx. So, yeah. <laughs> and and it's perfect, and that's how I see all my movies now. I mean, mm-hmm. I went and saw Power Rangers, which I wish I kind of wish I didn't, but um, <laughs> that uh, yeah, that that was weird because that was a Friday night and it was like completely packed. I'm like, I I love the theater experience. I love sitting there buying a over overly priced popcorn and an overly priced drink <laughs> to go sit there and enjoy a giant screen like that. That's great and all. But I've seen Star Wars, or the new Star Wars movies, the new Marvel, all of them in matinees because yeah. the less people, the better. <laughs> yeah. You got bills to pay, man. You got bills to pay. You're paying money to get an entertaining experience. And the last thing that you fucking need is, is, is someone shouting at the fucking screen or gasping every five seconds when something yeah. really miniature happens. Uh, she must have been smoking hot. Sheep. How do you sit? How do okay, you sit there? I'm not, the I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be that. I'm not gonna be that guy and sit here and, and judge a woman based on her looks. I'm not gonna be that person. I'll, I'll be that, that guy. guy. He will. <laughs> He's that guy. If she was a dog, you'd leave after ten minutes of that bullshit. <laughs> if she's doing that for ten minutes and you're thinking to yourself, just three more hours of this, and then I get her home in bed. That's the thing too. It's a three-hour movie. You decide. Exactly. To this she had to have been a ten. <laughs> This isn't a Luke Besson flick for 80 minutes and you can just throw it over a beer and forget about it. You know, this is a long flick. But you know, to go back to comics, you know, just for an example, as much as I enjoy Low, one of the things that irritates me and something that there is this comic company called CrossGen back in the day. And what they would always do is that they would put, I never got really a chance to get into them, but I've heard about them and read about them. And they always had a summary of the last volume in the opening pages of the book. So you were always brought up to speed. Yeah, Low is a story that takes like eight months for a f- in between fucking volumes. So I get back to volume three after reading volume two like months ago, and I just go, "Oh my god, where the hell am I?" <laughs> and, and it just it, 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 it just picks up on me where the last one left off, and expects you to just remember every single thing from eight months ago off the top of your head, like there's no problem. And yeah, it's like that's another thing that that's confusing for new readers. And then you get the opposite effect in stuff like Daredevil, where in a mainstream book like your Marvels or your DCs, where they're because they're getting new readers, they feel the need to retell the backstory of the character very briefly at the opening of each uh, issue. And yeah. it just becomes infuriating when you're reading it over and over again. Like when I was reading Batman Hush, um, a comic I only recommend for its art, by the way, um, its story is rather no. overrated. That'll probably get me flamed. Come at me. The the <laughs> the thing that's annoying about that book is that pretty much uh, like every issue or two, Batman needs to say, "I'm Batman. My parents were killed, and I went and I trained, and I came <laughs> back." And saying, like, "Yes, I fucking know. I've read <laughs> Batman before." Every <laughs> my hair again, Alfred. Yeah, and it's like I get it. You're getting new readers. You need to establish the thing. But like, if if a new reader is coming in at issue thirty, like fucking two hundred and thirty-one or whatever, you know, this is kind of this is going to be a problem. Even if you put in the backstory, it's still going to be confusing for people. Even if you tell me that, oh, I'm Batman. My parents were killed. Blah 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 blah. I'm still going. Who the hell is Dick Grayson? Who the hell is this? Is Batgirl now? Is it Batgirl or Batwoman? Who the hell is this? How did Lex Luthor become president? You know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. There's all these things where I'm just completely lost because it's 230 issue storyline, and that's what's going to happen. Yeah, when I the first time I went uh, into a comic shop, I was like, all right, I want to buy a Spider-Man comic. I mm. that that's all I wanted. I. I I was looking through the the shelves and I saw that they were on issue number it was like four or something, and I'm like four hundred and fifty something like yeah, I got, and I was almost excited by that fact like I got some catching up to do like this is awesome I there's all this stuff out for it, 
you know, so I, I picked up that issue, and it ended up being one of my favorite Spider-Man arcs of all time, The Ends of the Earth. I don't know if you guys have read that, but... I have not read that one, but no. Nah. It, it ended up being one of my favorite Spider-Man arcs. Um, probably it had something to do with it. it was my first actual Spider-Man arc that I'd read um, from start to finish. But yeah. it was cool. And, and and then I went back later and, oh, okay, this is how... So it led up to this. That That's really cool. And and I think for most people that that's not the case, though. They're like, I just want to know like what happened. And one yeah. of the, one of the great things is that recap page of the previous issue because mm-hmm. honestly, like, like it takes a month typically for one of these issues to come out, like a month in between yeah. issues. And yeah, because we're not psycho like Japan where we put where we pay <laughs> a writer and artist to slave away for fucking fourteen hours a day at minimum wage to get a fucking issue out every week. Yeah, like, and, and most of the time I don't remember exactly what happened. I remember the general idea of what was going on. But occasionally that recap page will save me, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. so yeah, I, I remember reading that. But you know, and it, and that's why I love one shots. By the way, like <laughs> one shots are awesome for that reason specifically. But uh, as much as I love a, a a big arc, like five to six issues, that's good for for an arc. Otherwise, I'm like, I start to get lost. Well, it's one thing time. that's really irritating me now that stem from comics, that's something I've always disliked and is now getting into the movie industry because of the popularity of Marvel, um, is the love of continuity. And I might do a video on this sometime, but that will be it will be more polite than what I'm saying now. But what I'm saying now is that I fucking hate the focus on continuity. Fans love it. They adore their continuity, picking the pieces. And I get it. I totally understand you know, the, the enjoyment and seeing all the little details. The issue, the problem is, is that DC has been so focused on continuity, for instance, that they've had to relaunch their world, their entire universe and their entire uh, line just... of characters. Not once, but fucking twice. <laughs> and they might be doing it again. Yeah, they probably are going to do it again at some point, knowing their track record. And um, And I see this happening again with Marvel in the film universe and it's just like and it's something that i noticed that's even happening in games and something that i really wish they that i that the best comics i think take into uh, do is rather than a overarching story over quite literally hundreds of fucking issues just make a good character arc or a story arc and give it a conclusion and continue from there on out like i think of something like red versus blue Oh, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. where you've got the AI, you've got the Blood Gulch Chronicles, you've got the AI arc from 6 to 10, and then after that you've got this new one that I haven't caught up on yet. But like, just make an arc like that, because the thing with an arc is that you at least then have a conclusion, and you don't have the issue of a story that eventually just eats itself. Yeah, there's a reason why in film, like, the three-act story works, or in basically, mm-hmm. the three, and it's not called the 1,000-act story. Yeah. Because it's just too, there's just too much. Like, you, and, you know, and, like, I, I'll go back to sort of that other experience I had. Uh, like, I knew that this would eventually wrap up, too. Like, the that Spider-Man arc would wrap up, and something new would start up pretty soon. Yeah. And, and that's, like you said, like, that's that's the way to do it. That's how you get people interested in, in all these little arcs. And maybe they're going to throw little things in there that kind of, that will transcend sort of the, that particular arc. But I know who Spider-Man is and I know he's not going to change all that much because I know the company really, really has a lot of investment in him and he makes a lot of money. So I know they're not going to change him a whole lot. Yeah. You like, have 400, thinking, 500 issues. Just keep, he's going to be the same character. Like, yeah, like I'm thinking of stuff like, um, like, uh, daredevil, uh, guardian devil. That was the one that was done by Kevin Smith of all people, uh, which okay. I actually, I give him some, some props for 
because uh, it was talked about in a Daredevil documentary where they interviewed some comic writers where Kevin Smith kind of took a risk going into the comic industry because if you do a shit job in the comic industry, then he's like, well, he couldn't even make it as a filmmaker and he can't even get in like this niche little scene. Like, you know, you're fucked by both the mainstream and the niche crowd simultaneously um, in that regard. But he did a really good job on Guardian Devil. And the thing about Guardian Devil is that it does have a arc that begins at, at issue one and it ends at issue eight and it ends in a satisfactory way that's good for the characters and it doesn't need to just keep going and going and going and going it just ends and you just move on to the next arc rather than making this overarching story across like 52 fucking characters that builds up into infinite crisis where it's where the storyline quite literally becomes like one earth fighting a fucking another and then it just <laughs> evaporates and you have to start from square one yeah, I it, it was the same thing with uh, what is it? Marvel's universe wiping event. I forget what it's called. Uh, I, I know what you're talking. I just about. read. It. I just read it. This is retarded. <laughs> it's their equivalent of Infinite Crisis. Yeah, right? yeah, it's their yeah, it's their equivalent. And it was the same thing. Like this is awesome. Secret. It, by the Wars way, that, that took for what's that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Secret Wars. Yeah, it took forever to come out, which did not help. But uh, yeah, I got it, it. Took place over a year. Like it took them a crazy long time to get all these issues out. So that didn't help them yeah. at all. But it was the same thing. It was like you have like, there's so much big fighting and all this stuff, and it's like I, there's no character anymore. I like it. Yeah. I just I did not enjoy that. And, and, another, and if and it irritates me. Oh, sorry. Go on, LT. No, I was just thinking like uh, another thing that bugs me in terms of like the continuity aspect, especially on film. I mean, it's so different with comics because we're talking about frame by frame. Yeah. So if you think about a movie, that is in terms of specific frames, that's hundreds of issues. <laughs> that can go into one movie. Yeah. So when you see a movie that's two hours long, and then another, then another, then another, all those little tidbits and those things you remember from a few movies before, that's that's becoming a shtick. That's not like, oh, oh, look at that. Oh, isn't that cool? It's just like, oh, they're doing that again because, yeah, it was in that movie from last year. I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's a popular consensus that the Marvel movies become more and more identical from one to one another as they progressed. Right. And like, I mean, like one of my one of the reasons that I liked Guardians of the Galaxy more than the others was because it felt separate. It felt like its own identity, it felt like its own thing. It didn't feel like it was just adding another stick to put into the Avengers later. Right. Yeah, I and agree. it's uh, it's over as time goes on with the Marvel movies. The more I, I just I don't care about the little nods to everything else. Like at first it was cute and it was it was like fun mm -hmm. to see like that happen. I mean, it, well, because everyone ever, it had never been done before at that right. point. Yeah, but now it's like uh, okay, like I guess you spent half a scene talking about this guy who I'm not going to see in this movie. All right, sure. <laughs> well, like, Marvel still has a few a few more to go because I think they had a very solid plan in frame. And the culmination of it is coming within the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, and so, I bet you that'll be Secret Wars-esque. But that's the thing. It's like, uh, where where does it go from there? I'm I'm more concerned with like the Star Wars aspect. Like you have to get get more original with something like that. You can't you can't continue to do another another Rogue One or another thing that ties into the existing. It's like get, get original, get creative. Well, this is this is why I feel like you're probably a franchise is honestly best off just making a mainline thing and then a side story, which that's kind of what Star Wars was trying to do, but the side story was still connecting to the greater narrative. 
I to be fair, I do like Rogue One. Main here's the thing: I like Rogue One, quote unquote. It's third act. That's mainly what okay, you mean. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. You like it last two minutes. That's what I keep saying. Yeah. yeah. The last, <laughs> I thought the ending of that movie was beautiful. It kind of right. reminded oh, me of us in a very dark day. way. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked that that they that they stuck to their guns in that aspect. But yeah, I mean, it's like, like I mean, it's something that I like going back to something like Halo. I feel like that series has always made that missed opportunity where instead of keeping where it has all the side content be exclusively in the extended universe, it never puts it into a game that's just a pure side story but the only the closest it ever got was odst and even then that still because of its low development time wasn't able to really go in that full direction so you know it's like and when you have a main when all you have is a main storyline and all you can do is up the stakes over and over again it just becomes tedious i'm thinking of stuff like 24 and the walking dead like, I mean, I like that for sure. Like, like I mean, like I I've only watched the first two seasons of Twenty Four, and I do, and I did like them. They're enjoyable. But the thing about it is that I read up on like some of the later seasons, and it's like you know, for anyone who hasn't watched it, it doesn't fucking matter if I give this away. This is like in the opening episodes in season Don't two. In season two, the entire season <laughs> is about preventing this nuclear bomb from going off in Los Angeles. And then in season six, the opening of the show is a nuclear bomb going off in Los Angeles. And I sat there and I looked, I went, okay, what's the fucking point? Like... <laughs> There's a little tidbit here, though. Because in season two, the first half of that season was about the nuclear bomb going and off. And then the second half was... It did detonate. the second half was season. hunting down who was responsible. Exactly. Yeah. So but... there were two bombs that went off. <laughs> But still, I mean, it's just like, you know, like, okay, so you went through all this stuff, and then by season six, like, oh, how do we up the stake? Oh, we're just going to put a fucking nuclear bomb in Los Angeles. Like, yes, it does up the stake, but it just completely negates everything that came before. I hear there's going to be a tank and a submarine <laughs> and on ice. That's yes. what's going to happen next, right? Yeah, and it's like, it's same thing with Walking Dead. It's like, okay, That's so... A theory, yeah, season two. What do they do? They go into it. They go. They find a safe house. They find out it's not safe. They run the fuck away. Season three. They find a safe house. It's not safe. They run the fuck away. <laughs> season four. And it just keeps going. Yeah. Going, going. There's. A, I gave up on that show after season two because I saw the direction that it was going in. Yeah. Like, uh, what was the one that YMS pointed? Oh yeah, the the moment when the big fat zombies in the well and they can't kill it because oh if they kill it then it will infect the well. And I went. <laughs> Fuck you! I'm out. I'm done. No, this this is. There's no recovering from this. This is too retarded. For I'm just. I'm done. I can't continue. I can't take the show seriously anymore. Yeah, I thought I was done with Fast and Furious when they were driving cars out of an airplane. But like, we have literally submarines now that are going at top speed on yeah, ice. On ice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, to man. be fair, I mean the the fear like here's the I I was never a Fast and the Furious fan even though I was I grew up right in that time when it was like the big thing. But not even part five. I I didn't watch part five. You see, that's the <gasps> thing. I haven't seen the Fast and the Furious movies where they just said, you know what, fuck it, who cares anymore? It's just a heist film. It's just <laughs> over the top and ridiculous. Like like in in the early movies, they tried to. It seemed like yeah. they were trying to take themselves seriously. And we were just like, come the fuck on. Five was yeah. the one. You want to see five then? Yeah, I do hear that five is the one where they just like, where they just own up to it. And like, you know what? Screw yes. this. It's, it's, it's a joke. Who comes to these to take these seriously? It right. was an action-packed adrenaline fuel ride. Mm -hmm. That sounds like cover quotes.
I LT that was from cover my head. <laughs> LT cover quotes. No, that was straight from my head. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Yeah. Because it's on every cover cover. I will say, I oddly, oddly enough, I like Tokyo Drift the most. You know why? Because oh, Tokyo no, Drift. No, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The reason I don't like more it flaming coming your way. No, no. Here's the thing. I like Tokyo Drift the most. The reason why? Because for most of the driving races, they use actual cars and fucking stunts. Whereas in okay. two and four and mostly one. It, they just were just using CG and bullshit. And the thing I like in Tokyo Drift is like a lot of the races were much more grounded. There were no Honda Civics going underneath fucking 18 wheeler. It was just two cars <laughs> racing. And like, yes, yeah. this is what I came here for. All right, that's all good and well. I appreciate that explanation. But you don't have someone like Richard Corliss from Time Magazine saying that Fast Five is the best in the series for nothing. Oh, yeah, like I'm sure it probably is. But like that that's the thing is like when... Uh, they that's when they it became the spectacle of stunt work in combination to CG and that type of stuff which someone can appreciate. Right, you don't get someone like Sean Edwards on Fox TV saying it's a nonstop thriller, right? I mean, he doesn't just say that. <laughs> okay. For okay, dude. <laughs> I've only seen the first movie in that series. Is it okay if I just skip to number five? Because it just certainly seems like it. Here's like, watch, watch the racing scenes in Tokyo Drift. The storyline, all that type of stuff is pff, fucking... Don't listen to them. It's boring. If you want to see cars actually fucking drive, it's not a bad flick. Okay. And if you want to see shit that. acting even worse than the Fast and Furious <laughs> series, you'll check no out way. Timeline. With this guy, with the lead actor, the worst oh, actor you've no. ever seen. My God, <laughs> what's his name? Paul Walker. Paul, Paul Walker. Paul Walker in Timeline was was uh oh man, how do you say liquid shit? That's like I will. Really say, you know what's funny? I never. Here's the thing. I never liked Paul Walker in Fast and the Furious. He was always the lamest part. But Stale. then I saw yeah, just completely bland, lame acting, all that type of stuff. But the th I then saw a movie called Running Scared. Oh yeah. That they really tried to out. hype that big time. I remember they were playing like the first 15 minutes on like regular TV. Really? I completely missed out on it when it came out because I wasn't you know, paying attention then. I only watched it after I saw trailers from Hell with Max Landis where he said, this movie is completely nuts. And I'm like, okay, I'll go see it. And then me and my dad or something go, wow, this movie is fucking nuts. Running and scared. I fell in love with it because Running Scared, it's I, fr I, I describe Running Scared as, if you haven't seen it, I describe it as, it's the best graphic novel that was never written. It is completely right. paced like an intense thrill-wide graphic novel where, you know, it starts right off the bat with an action scene. You think, oh, okay, this is going to be a hardcore thing, whatever. But then it goes in direction like, oh, I get it now. And the way that it's filmed and the way that it's shot and the way that it's edited is completely bonkers and batshit crazy. But just like a comic book, it doesn't sit there trying to justify its concept or anything like that. It just puts you in the drama and it just goes full fucking speed. It never stops. I think it's no coincidence that I think it's rather well maybe it is a good sense but both it and crank came out in the same year and both of okay. them are just it, it, it's not as full retard as crank but it's got a similar <laughs> thing oh, of it just keeps going and going and going and it never right. slows down until the end write it down club write that down yeah i'm watching this movie man we're watching uh, this is our next uh, this is our next movie that we're gonna watch nah, I, I highly recommend it it's a pretty and it's, it's a movie where paul walker does a genuinely great job he does a really good job as his character as this, this i gotta see as this anti-hero yeah i'm like i'm sitting going oh wow paul walker can't act it's just that fast and furious movies were so poorly written and fucking directed he got me i don't blame him so much now i'm gonna have to go through all the fast and furious movies i'm gonna have to read the rest of 100 bullets 
<laughs> I have to go through this. The first Fast and the Furious movie is just Point Break. It's just a shitty Point Break. <laughs> and that's a that, bad movie. That's a bad movie. Point Break is not a bad movie. I, <laughs> dude, I could not. Stay. I don't know, man. <laughs> that scene where Keanu Reeves is shooting his, his gun right in the air because he's so frustrated because he couldn't kill dude, him. I, so yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's okay. Like that in Fast and Furious with Paul Walker's just stabbing tires. Yeah. It's like, no. Yeah, there's I like, enjoyed a, Point Break, but. Yeah, it's... Point Break is fun. Fast and the Furious is just. But yeah, Fast and the Furious, you just, it just swaps. It's just instead of surfing and bank robbery, it's just truck ties <laughs> and cars. And that's the only thing. It has the exact same. As the undercover cop who gets attached to family, gets into a relationship with the chick, and then lets the fucking bad guy go at the end because he cares about him so much. Spoiler alert. I haven't seen it. Oh, <laughs> no, yeah, I, I don't know. Point Break is I don't even I don't think we should spend 15 minutes talking about Point Break, but I don't care about that. But like it's just like it's a fun movie for whatever it is, and I feel, I feel like you know I feel really sad that. And because of Fast and Furious popularity, that guy who wrote it, David Ayer, he puts that as a writing credit on End of Watch. Says, like, from the writer of Training Day and Fast and the Furious. And I went, dude, you're so much better than the Fast and Fucking <laughs> Furious. End of Watch is, like, one of my favorite movies made in the last five years. Do not advertise this shit. You really put that on there? Yeah, they put that on there in the trailer. Another movie I still have to see is End of Watch, although it, I've been spoiled on it, so I don't know. Fan- Oh, you had it spoiled? Fuck. Wait, who's yeah. end of watch? Uh, Jake, Jake John Hall and Michael Pena. It's a brilliant Were they movie. cops? Yeah, they're cops. Uh... And I got spoiled. I, I was actually looking forward to seeing that movie, and then I got spoiled, and I'm like, I don't know if I should go see that now. I don't know if it'll be worth it. Is it worth sitting through there, even though I know what happens? I- I would I'd say so because it's really well shot. It's really fil- well filmed. The, the dialogue and the chemistry between the two leads is fantastic. Like the main thing that End of Watch does a really good job of is not only is its pacing and how unflinching it is in terms of its content and violence, but just how much you get attached to the ride that these characters are on. Because you follow okay. them throughout the entire thing. You know, you're following them through the times where it's just the two of them sitting in a fucking cop car waiting for a call and they're just bickering at one another. And it's I'll not watch boring. This movie. It's not boring somehow. It's right. somehow one of the, some of the best parts of the film. Write it That's... down, Claude. Write that down. That's the next one. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love Tarantino movies. Like, they can just sit in a diner for an hour and a half and yeah. I'm entertained. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. And it's not like they're talking about anything crazy in particular. It's just great characters. That's basically like Aaron Sorkin's entire fucking career is just making characters talk somehow be interesting. I don't I don't understand it, but you know what? I'm gonna get there one day. <laughs> okay. Let's let's shift gears abruptly because I'm the host and that's how I do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Mass Effect Andromeda. I think we'd get in a lot of trouble if we didn't talk about Mass Effect Andromeda today. Some people have been asking me to do a video on it. I'm not planning to do it immediately because, you know me, I like to sit and ponder on things for a while. I don't like to just jump on the conversation when it's popular for hits. I don't care. Right. I, Can I we don't. get DJ's question out of the way first before we go on to it? He has a question? He had a question for you. He knew he couldn't be here. Uh-huh. And so, um, so he texted. He wanted to make sure. Uh, ask what he thought of Andromeda sound design. Sound design in particular? I yeah. Okay, there's two Let's parts. Start with that. There's two parts to this. Because there's the sound effects and design, all that type of stuff, which I think is really well handled. The guns sound beefy. Uh, there's a lot of environmental detail. It's not as polished as Mass Effect 2, I think, but it's still really, really well done. 
Um, funny enough, it was made, the sound designers made, one of the sound designers was one of my favorite, the guy who made my favorite album of all time, Coma Duster, which when I found out he was working, I went, oh, that explains some things. But yeah, the sound design is pretty great. The music, here's the thing, it's composed by the guy who did the music for the Daredevil TV show on Netflix. So I thought, okay, this guy's pretty good then. The thing about the music is that it takes the approach of always being in the background like it's never at the forefront and never. i respect and, I, and here i just that's a decision i've just never agreed with i understand the philosophy <clears throat> behind it i just don't agree with it and that's oh you don't want the music at the forefront because then it takes away from the experience but i think about you know the most memorable things you know like in mass effect one you go into the galaxy map what's the fucking thing you hear the uncharted worlds theme and that <sighs> sticks with you throughout you could there are people there are 10 hour loops of that song on youtube that have people just studying to it because it's great for it and or stuff like the mass effect 2 suicide mission that music is at the fucking forefront and it's what propels that mission and the thing with andromeda's music is that it just doesn't grab i don't remember a song from the soundtrack so far and i'm like i'm like 60 hours into the game i haven't even touched a multiplayer yet because i'm not finished the campaign yet yeah that game i don't know man i i have not been hooked on it yet i i don't remember a character i don't let alone a song like I don't remember like <laughs> characters, the story. I I don't know, man. Like this game. The thing for me is that I me. went into. I went into. Where are you at? I'm curious. I just. Well, I, I got done with uh, EOS, and I just started okay. doing some side missions. So I'm I'm a little bit into. It. I'm not too far into it. But. That's the thing. I, that's the thing is that it, one Andromeda has a very slow start. I would say the game mainly picks up after EOS for two reasons okay. one the other worlds you find are more detail and two when you revisit eos um there are more, you find out that there are more things to do on it after that like when you, you, you when you go to a planet once it's not just you're done you can go back to it and there's still more quests for you to do after that so like you know after i landed on eos and i thought and i thought i was just going to do this minor side quest and it ended up turning to like this massive boss fight against a remnant enemy that was pretty cool and was unexpected and that's something that the game can't explain in that opening hour. But the thing about Andromeda so far for me is um, I went into it because um, here's the thing. I only saw the advertisements and the discussions from developers when they were first announcing it, like when they were being very quiet about it. And they said it was going to be heavy on exploration. It was going to go back to Mass Effect 1, and they're going to take heavy influence from Dragon Age Inquisition because it worked out pretty well for them in sales and reception. So I went, okay, so they're going to make Mass Effect Inquisition. I'm okay with that. And I went into it expecting Mass Effect Inquisition, and it <laughs> fucking is. It's got every single element from Inquisition. It's got the big open world. It's got the not the MMO-style side quests. It's got the, um, the point allocation where you can uh, give yourself bonuses by um, awaking certain pods, similar to in Dragon Age Origins, the... Uh, and reinforcements you can get into either your military or your research. It's got big boss fight side quests. It's got exploration elements. It's got mineral gathering. It's got crafting. It's got every single thing from that game into this, just sci-fi. And only with the exploration being more fun because now Bioware's actually made a fucking decent vehicle finally in the Nomad, <laughs> which it's about time, Jesus yeah. Christ, after all this time. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I am enjoying so far my first playthrough. It's something that I'll, we'll see how the game holds up when I come back to it later. But my first playthrough of it, I'm really enjoying it so far. It's not wowing me or amazing me or anything like that. But then again, after Mass Effect 3, I wasn't going into it expecting that. I was mainly going to, you know, I was curious to see where they're going to go with it. 
And in terms of gameplay, I think it's easily, in terms of the action-based stuff, it's easily the best. It's oh, way sure. more engaging than two or three. It's a lot more open. The The core gameplay loop of conversation, exploration, and uh, combat is finally back. Whereas in, in my Mass Effect videos, I talked about how from Mass Effect 1 to 3, the gameplay core just kept narrowing and narrowing and narrowing as it continued rather than expanding. And after how linear Mass Effect 3 was, it's a breath of fresh air to just be able to do quests in any order I fucking please, drive wherever I want, tackle bases in any order, and blah, 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 and all that type of stuff, craft whatever I want, etc. So it's refreshing in that regard. But the biggest issue so far is you can really tell that the writing team changed yeah oh yeah between the two games i like the i genuinely like the characters like your squad mates uh vetra and pb are my favorites by far but i like all of them pretty much the thing is though there's just there isn't the geth do not intentionally infiltrate or the shepherd rex or the tally dialogue or or i've got a shotgun there's none of that memorable or garris's you know reach and flexibility there's none of that wit or charm or memorable conclusion with characters even when a character says a line like drac drac often has dialogue that i laugh at but it doesn't stick with me somehow it feels more juvenile like and as much as i like that there are moments with writer where he unexpectedly curses, which is actually pretty cool because it's something that's different from the Shepard character. It does kind of speak to that we're not as witty as the other team. Yeah. Beforehand, Shepard would do something like, you know, beforehand, a renegade inter a renegade style interrupt would be Shepard shoots a gas tank and says, you talk too much, and then sets the guy in burning flames. Whereas Ryder's <laughs> like, I'm going to fuck your shit up. Both are interesting, but somehow the other just has more creativity behind it. Oh, and absolutely. That's, and that's felt in the dialogue, I feel, that, you know, after, I've, like I said, I've, I've put about 50-something-plus hours into the campaign, and there's not really many memorable dialogue moments. I like the characters, I'm having a good time, I'm really enjoying the game, but it's not sticking with me for, uh, like, the same way the other games were. Yeah, and, and when I first booted up the game, I'm like, all right, going to another galaxy, this is awesome. I, I, I stayed as much away from, like, the trailers and all that as I possibly yeah. could, just so, Which, like... Not to interrupt you for too long, but I, I, I looked at some of the trailers, and I think another reason that might be misleading people is that the trailers later, after those early ones, made it look like an action-packed thing like Mass Effect 2 and 3, which it's absolutely not. It's way more like Mass Effect 1 in its focus. Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I, you can definitely feel that. It's definitely not like an, an action game. Like, it's no. definitely not Mass Effect 2, that's no. for sure. But uh, uh, where was I going with that? Um, but yeah, like, it, you know, it opens up going to New Galaxy. All the stuff is really awesome. And then it just kind of like, it doesn't feel like it grinds to a halt, but it just kind of feels like, oh, we're just going to kind of hang out in this Pathfinder business for a while. You're like, yeah. all right, well, I, I know I'm a Pathfinder. You've got to say it every 20 seconds. I get There's that. There's not much urgency in the opening, and it doesn't help that the opening is also very predictable in its events. Yeah. It's like, okay, the, the only thing is, is like, you discover that some of the other arcs are missing, and that's pretty cool. Like, yeah. why are the arcs missing? It's pretty good intrigue, and then you, you have to go do this other thing first. You're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll figure out what happened to those later. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was going to be like the main thing where these other arcs were missing, and you have to go like hunt down and you get to see all these new all these new characters but nope yeah and like if the opening was you having to decide which arc to hunt down after first yes that would have been interesting that would have yes. put you into and the thing about the character of writer is that 
<clears throat> when the game's writing is at its best, it puts writer in the character of like, yes, they're in charge, but they're kind of flying off the rails. You know, they're not trained for this. They're just going through the motion. Like they're doing by gut rather than their intelligence. And that's what the writing does. And a best way, the best way to approach that at the beginning would have been to make a big choice when you've just been put in this position at the beginning. Oh like yeah, absolutely. Right off the, like right off the bat, well, who do you think is more important to get? The Solarians, Astari, or Turians? Like, well, I don't fucking know. Like, that's a fucking big choice yeah. to get here. It's like uh, it's like having them do the. Uh, are Are you gonna save the council? Are you gonna replace it with human? That's like putting that choice in the beginning of a game yeah. instead of you know at the end of Mass Effect One, mm-hmm. which would have been really interesting. But yeah, I don't know, man. And then when, and then I'm at EOS and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm in a vault. I'm underwater. What like what is yeah. this? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I think know. um, yes. I mean, I'm really enjoying the game. It's just that the it definitely does not. That the it does not set the stakes right off the bat. It's to me the thing I've noticed is that it's very much an old school RPG in its design, not so much in its gameplay because it feels like a modern action game, a pretty good one. Um, but in terms of its structure, we have a very slow opening and you have a very slow plot that is mainly dealt through exploration. That's something that the series was not building up towards for the past while. So I understand the confusion and the whiplash that people go from Mass Effect One to Three. And then they go to Mass Effect Andromeda that goes way the hell back to an older style of build-up and design, which is understandable, but that's not what it's set up at that point in terms so, of the series. So with the positives and the negatives for this newest game, you'd basically liken it to the Tokyo Drift of the series. <laughs> <laughs> I say it's absolutely... Here's the thing. like People say, oh, it's a shit game. It's, you know, it's the worst game. It's Battlefield Earth and video games. Fuck off. It's not, it's not in that 2 out of 10 territory. It's a... No. I think it's... I really, I'm enjoying it a lot. I think it's easily up there with, like, I gave Inquisition the game of the year at the time more out of default than anything, because 2014 was such a shit year for me. It game. really was. But, um, so yeah, I mean, I enjoy, so Mass Effect and Draw basically just being Inquisition, but with better exploration, because you got a fucking vehicle instead of a shitty horse with, like, the worst animations. They're like, <laughs> they, like You think the face animations are bad in Andromeda. Look at the horse animations in Inquisition. They're, they're both, like, just baffling. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, I mean, the thing that Lore Runner really touched up upon this in his video, where he's made the point of you have a new team making an estab- working on an established franchise that's an open world RPG. Yeah, good and, luck. And, and he's like, you've got three things against a new studio that would typically crumble a established company of an established RPG that's open world. Like one of those things by itself is way, it's not to say that making a shooter is easy or anything like that. It's not, it's really difficult, but comparatively, Comparatively, to make a really good six-hour shooter campaign to a 60-hour sprawling open-ended RPG is way the fuck harder, especially if it's it's an established brand, and especially it's with a new team that's never done this before. Like, the last thing that Bioware Montreal worked on was the multiplayer for Inquisition and Mass Effect 3. Essentially, a co-op dungeon mode and wave defense. They went from wave defense yeah. to a fucking RPG that's longer than the last three games combined. Like, I don't understand the decision behind that. And I think that's the other thing too. Of 
um, when people say, oh, this is Bioware fucking up. It's not Bioware, it's Bioware Montreal. There's a huge distinction in that. You know, remove the Bioware from the name of Montreal. It's just a different company, essentially. Might it's, as well be. It, it might as well be. It's got like four people who worked on the original games. That's it. Other than that, it's entirely new staff. And I think um, with the new staff, I think I give them credit for what they did. It's just that when in the age of like post Witcher 3 or post like these other games, making Mass Effect Inquisition is not going to wow the industry and i think that's what's happened with it yeah i, I absolutely agree it's uh while while i do think they did a good job as a new studio it's there's still that mass effect name on it you know mm -hmm. it, you, you come mass to effect name on it there's the bioware name on it people are going to go in there with expectations and it's not unreasonable yeah and i don't i definitely don't think it's a terrible game i think that's you're you're overreacting if you're saying that this game is terrible however i don't i, I also think if you say this is a great game like this is mm -hmm. on par with me one or something like that it's i think you're also wrong well well here's the thing i think um if you look here's the thing. i think in technical terms at least on the first playthrough that I've done, I think it's easily got the best exploration of all the games. It's got the best vehicle control of all the games. It's got a good loop out of all the three games, and it's got the best action of three games. So technically speaking, I do think it's up there with the other three games, technically, in terms of their yeah. mechanics and how they yeah. feel and how it's designed. What's missing from the other three games is the feel and the dialogue and the characters, which I mean, don't get it's not bad. It's still there to some degree, but it's that feel and the character and dialogue that that is what truly resonates with people. And that's something you can't put an algorithm on. And I feel like that's when when people say Andromeda is so much worse. What I really think they mean is it doesn't connect with me the way that the characters and story did in the other three games did. Very, very well put. Uh, Rachel Vick, it's always been a, a pleasure talking with you. They're telling us you got to go, uh, but I just want to wrap it up. Witcher 3, should I play it? Absolutely. It is a brilliant game. I absolutely loved it. I'm looking forward to going back to it at some point. I do not recommend. If you Are you a completionist? D of course. Uh, well, okay. uh, you may not like it. <laughs> okay, well, from 1939 I'm up to, to 1940. To put this in perspective, I had two co-workers at EA that both got 100% of the game. It took them 450 to 500 hours. I'm on it. Have fun. Good luck. See you in three years, pal. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. I'll see you when <laughs> Cyberpunk comes out, or whatever that thing's called. Um, I'm, I'm really curious. To, I'm hoping. If CD can do what? Here's the thing, because here's the funny thing. I did not respect CD remotely before Witcher 3. I did not like Witcher 2 even a little bit. I <laughs> really did not enjoy the game. And here's the thing, I gave that game chances in a way that I normally don't give games. Like That's I right. put 12 hours into it and those were just me starting it up three times. Like, come on, this is the time. I'm gonna get invested in the characters. I'm gonna like the storytelling. And then it would like fade to black in a cutscene for the seventh time where a character said nothing of value and went, oh, fuck this, I'm right. out. <laughs> I shit on my copy and handed it back to the game store saying my dog did it and got my refund. That's that's exactly how I feel about Andromeda. I boot it up. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do it now. I'm gonna play a Mass Effect game. This is gonna be awesome. Yeah. And then I just kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't it, like during a dialogue. I'm like, all right, I'll go get some water. Yeah, <laughs> go get some it's water. Too Come bad. back. Yeah, it's too know. bad. It's too bad that not everyone's able to get invested. I mean, I'm, I'm. To be fair, I've every game series because this is to me by the numbers because 
I was able to enjoy Dragon Age 2. I was able to enjoy uh, Thief, Deadly Shadows, and Dave's Ex Invisible War. I was able to enjoy Bioshock 2. I was enjoyed, able to enjoy Halo 4. I'm kind of used to this point of getting enjoyment from games that disappoint the uh, the, the the hardcore fan base of a crowd. That's and good. So, I mean, like, you know, I'm just used to that. So, you know, it's it's I, I don't have any... I don't hold anything against people who aren't able to get into it. You know, that's that that's their prerogative. And, you know, and that and that's why and the thing that does annoy me is when people say, oh, well, because of this bad press or because of this race is being involved in the game, I'm not going to buy it. Because I sit there and go, you know, I understand, I get it. But at the same token, you know, coming from a person who doesn't give a shit about what other people say about a game. I think it's always important that you give something you're open always open-minded to something when you can't so like for instance rainbow six siege is my favorite game of that year and so one of my favorite games to this day oh, and, it sure. got, and i know there are plenty of people that never gave it a shot because they heard people meta bombing it because it had no single player and i think that's just a fucking shame it really I is i think that it's such a shame that people were not going to give that game a chance because of something that is ultimately trivial and completely irrelevant to um the overarching enjoyment of that game so for instance in mass effect when people say oh these face animations are so bad which by the way they fucking are i love the memes that came out of it i was laughing my ass <laughs> off and like everything else when i saw core run away walk away like a fucking oh, flapping around i burst out laughing and i laughed my ass off at that but when you sit there and go oh i'm not gonna buy this game because the facial animations suck fucking look at the look at rape face shepherd in mass effect 2 and tell me that you <laughs> mass effect for, and tell me that you played mass effect 2 for the facial animation Oh, no, shit. you played it because of the writing and the characters. Right, yeah. I just figured out my Halloween costume for this year. <laughs> Holy shit. You're, you're going to run around with a Ray face Ray shepherd face doing shepherd. a poop walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved um, Mass Effect 2 at the time. The memes that were coming from Tally's romance scene where Shepard would take the mask off. And it's the Ray face version where he's got like this massive stupid smirk. It's just... He opens the mask, and Tally's face is just his smirk, and his reflection is just his smirk in return. That's oh amazing. I gotta see that. <laughs> it's not rape on Omega-3. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just, I get it, because, you know, at the, in the mainstream consumer, it's not their job. Like I said earlier, it's not their job to be concerned with a lot of type of stuff. I just think it's a shame that when something ultimately trivial, like no single player or facial animations prevents someone from buying a game because it's, you know, it's the thing to do on Twitter. I just think it's a shame because, you know, it, it just, it encourages groupthink mentality rather than critical thinking. Oh yeah. I, 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 uh, I don't know. I think I will finish Andromeda purely based on the fact that it's a sci-fi RPG and there's not enough of those on the Xbox. And, <laughs> and it's going to take you a long time. Like I said, I'm like a long time. I'm like 55 hours in and still not finished yet. So overall, I think I think everyone wants you to just like go and cryo sleep or something for a little bit and then that way time can pass and you can make a Mass Effect Andromeda video. Uh, Yay. But <laughs> I'm just going to say it right now I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, guys. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, but I think Race Vic has said he's going to wait 20 years before that happens. Absolutely. 20 years when I'm uh, when I'm in a rocking chair off of all the drugs I've had. Then, yeah, then we're going to look at it. <laughs> then we're going to do Mass Effect 20 years later. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Smirk Network, episode 532. <laughs> uh, I will buy you a cup of coffee if we make it to 532. I love coffee. All right, cool. <laughs> You'll, I'll need it.
Fucking like I'm yeah. not gonna be awake by that point. Yeah, just just uh, set up an IV. Just just feed it to me through my veins. <laughs> Maybe right, we'll, we'll just go. Maybe we'll just go full Ghost in the Shell by that point. We won't need coffee. Oh, no. Ghost! In the, we didn't even talk about Ghost in the Shell. Oh man, I need Rich, to read that. You got your people looking through into our broadcast studio here. They really want you out of here. We can talk about Ghost in the Shell. Broadcast studio. Come back anytime. Hey, I'd I do not like I'd, these mean looks they're giving us. I'd be happy to come back and talk about Ghost in the Shell next time. In fact, it'll right. probably be more relevant. Actually, yeah, let's uh, let's do that. Let's make it. Let's make a note when that movie comes out. Have you back on? And what, when does that come out? That comes out in like three days, doesn't it? Yep, very soon. So, uh, yeah. All right, yeah, we'll be in touch though for sure. Welcome to uh, to Smirk Network, where Racevic says something intelligent and we talk about it. This has been episode I said number th- intelligent. <laughs> this has been episode number thirty nine. Thank you very much for coming back, man. It's always fun to have you on the show. It's been an hour and a half yeah. long show. We've not done that before. That's uh, that's well, great. I did it now, All right, guys? I can <laughs> tell by how much I need to piss. <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. Once again, thank you for coming back on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye.